This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as the organizer of a popular board game, Night for tech CEOs, they always want to play Monopoly. But in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chair is Franklin Four, the national correspondent for The Atlantic and former editor of The New Republic. His most recent book is World Without Mind, The Existential Threat of Big Tech, which just came out in paperback. Frank, welcome to Recode Decode. So honored to be here. So we ran into each other at a Washington, D.C. party the other night. As which one is prone a, to do. An odd one in the lead. It was by David Gregory. Thank you, David, for having us. It was a delicious meal with Beth Wilkinson, his wife. And it was really interesting. It was my first big Washington party since living here since part-time. You, yeah, yeah. yeah, it was interesting to hear. How, how have things changed? Uh, it's, it's an interesting, it's, I feel like I'm in the Hunger Games and I'm living in the capital. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, it's a really, it's nothing, really. I thought it would be I would, different. I would, I would love to hear you, uh, at some point go on about the contrast between the cultures of the, the Bay Area well, in Washington, D.C. I think they talk only about tech there and they talk only about politics here, right? Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. Tech, tech gossip versus political gossip right. and stuff. And it degenerates into Trump. All of them degenerate into Trump, <laughs> yeah. essentially. Yeah. Um, and I want to talk about that That's with you. That's so, modern life. L- let's go through your, your history. You have a really amazing history, uh, journalistically. Um, you worked for the New Republic. You mm-hmm. were in the New Republic and have been in Washington and written about policy and all kinds of issues. You're now at the Atlantic, which has now all the... How's the money doing over there with the Lorraine's it's, money? It's pretty good. I'll tell you a story. Between the time... So they, they serialized my book uh-huh. last year. And bet- in the chapter they serialized was the chapter about how Silicon Valley was swallowing journalism. Yes. So it goes into galleys, and the mm-hmm. print issue, as mm-hmm. you know, has an insanely long lead time. And right. in between the time that it went into galleys and the time it appeared, uh, Laureen Jobs had bought The Atlantic. And part I, of it, uh, right? No, part, part of The Atlantic. Whatever, right? I looked, and I looked like a punk. Yeah, but, you did. Yeah. But that's okay. She doesn't yeah. care. They don't no. care. They don't care about anything. And so we're going to talk about that, too. There's so many things to talk about with you. Working for The Atlantic, you cover—you had a—just give me a quick history of your where you've been. You've been to—where did you start? Okay, so my first job was actually at Slate, which was then owned by Microsoft. And yes. so the summer— So you've been working for tech people your whole yeah, life? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Can't escape it. Yeah. So, yeah, the, so Microsoft, as you will remember, yes, wanted Michael to build— Kinsley. With Michael Kinsley, but they wanted to build a media empire, and so they, they started an entire fresh campus called Red West, where yes, I, I went to, and it was kind of the archetypal tech paradise, yeah. where with a gorgeous cafeteria, a waterfall running. But you had to the, pay for the food there, which is did, unusual. You did. Microsoft not, is cheap that yeah, way. Yeah, they gave yeah. us the drinks, right. but not the food. Right. Um, yeah. Red West was always interesting to me because they were like, "It's Red West." I'm like, "You're like 500 yard, million." feet away from Bill Gates, and that's the only important thing at yeah. Microsoft. Well, do you remember they started, they, they had a women's magazine called Upwire. Oh, I remember all of them. Yeah, wonder why that Mungo, one failed. Not Mungo Park. <laughs> no, it was up, was it Upwire? Upwire. Yeah, Wire. on the first, on the MSN, MSN2, yeah. MSN2 yeah. had all those, we- and right. it was all dark, and the comic appeared. Oh, yeah, I was yeah. around, I wrote about all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who was it? Did they have Mungo Park? No, that was Discovery. There's a whole bunch of them. They right. were all bad. But they were going to become, they were going to become oh, the yeah. new media empire. Yes, they were. And, um... But alas, that they didn't thought work I was out. mean when I said this. I snickered at them the entire time. 
this is mean. We can do it here. But, you know, there was Michael, who was so talented, up in, and Jack Schaefer was there. Yeah, exactly. They were all there. Yeah. Exactly. And uh, they were going to uh, sidewalk with their uh, competitor sidewalk. to the That's city right. papers. And they took, the a, they took a lot of Washington Post people at the yeah. time. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and then MSNBC, of course, yes, was the other great bastard uh, child yep. of that yep. shotgun marriage. <laughs> they just put a lot of money into a lot of things. And now they, they're into the cloud. I right. think that's all they're doing. There. Yeah, so I was there for mm-hmm. I was there for a couple of years. Right. And one, By the way, Slate was a great product. Yeah, it at was. At the same time, it was a great – thank was, you for the money, Bill Yeah, it was, a, it was a revolutionary was. magazine. And mm-hmm. for a chunk of time, it was one of the great magazines, yeah. I think. Mm-hmm. And it was actually pretty fun. I mean, I mean, you remember that time probably. You you had more exposure to that than I did. Mm-hmm. But just the feeling that everything was up for grabs yes, at that absolutely. moment. And that there yep. were no rules. Yep. And it was just really – it was mm-hmm. uh, exhilarating. You could experiment. Mm-hmm. So I did that. And then I went to work for uh, The New Republic, which was – the opposite. <laughs> yeah, right. it was. It was. It was. Um, it was a magazine. I. Uh, I'm a first child. I want to please my father. It was the magazine my dad had and read. And it was a hot place to work for a long time when I was very young in journalism. That yeah. was like if you got that, that yeah. you were made. Kind yeah. Of thing. Yeah, I loved it. Yeah. I mean, it was. Uh, it was a. It was a joyful place for me to work, even though mm-hmm. I had to deal with some incredible uh, personalities yes. who made life. Oh, I know. Uh, them all. You know yeah. yeah, very difficult at times. I was a writer there, and then I was an editor from 2006 to 2010. Mm-hmm. And in 2008, when the financial crisis hit, it made life really difficult for the New Republic. The New Republic was already a difficult place to work mm-hmm. because we just struggled with the digital Could, era. Did Peretz own it? This Marty Peretz own it? it, it he, no, he was, uh, he was a part owner at that, yeah. that moment. But the advent of blogs was an existential challenge to the magazine because that's what, the, what it was the magazine was yeah it, it was trafficked blogging. in opinion mm-hmm. and then suddenly opinion became ubiquitous and a lot of it was just as good as the stuff that it we was. were publishing yeah um, if you know in, in, in some cases better mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so it became a real challenge to the magazine how do you adapt in that sort of world and then the financial crisis hit mm-hmm. and we we constantly had uh, beneficent owners who were doing it as kind of a hobby mm-hmm. And so it became harder and harder to find hobbyists to right. take on a magazine like that. And at a certain point, I just kind of got sick of it, and I and I left to go write books and mm-hmm. write some essays. And then in 2012, the magazine was about to be sold again, and it was looking for an owner. And along came this guy, Chris Hughes. Chris, I know him well. Who was kind of this mystical savior. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was he was so smart. Yeah, he earnest. Was so earnest. Yeah. Like, so dedicated to what I felt like were the core Mm -hmm. values of the magazine. Mm -hmm. And I really liked him a lot. Got Mm -hmm. on just uh, famously well with him. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in fact, I always did, Mm -hmm. which was kind of the surprising thing to me. I just had him on the podcast about UBI. He's all into the UBI issue. Yeah. So, uh, you know, a lovely guy. Mm -hmm. And it seemed like this incredible opportunity because, you know, we'd struggled before. We had all this money. We had an owner who was committed. We had an owner who got a lot of attention Mm -hmm. because of his earnestness and because of kind of the— Idealism, the, no, the idealism that he is, he espoused, right. and it felt like we had this kind of once in a lifetime opportunity to remake journalism in a, in a dignified mm-hmm. sort of way to mm-hmm. pr- to do a demonstration project that right. we could master all these things that had yeah. challenged us in the past. And you guys, I remember, yeah, of course. Him and I was like, oh no, 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 <laughs> yeah. no, he can't help but meddle. They all can't help but meddle. Yeah. Like, well, in, in my head, Piero Miniar was doing this too with the, with the Intercept, yeah. and I'll never forget. I talked to him because. We talked to him about funding some stuff, and he was like, we should talk about it. I'm like, I don't want to fight with you. Like, I don't have an interest in fighting. But one of the things I was like, these people are going to drive. If you pick a desk, they're going to think you're meddling. And this is a group of people. Like, right. you know, you, you all have, like, personalities. Yeah. And so thanks for the money, but go yeah. away. Well, it's the, not the thing I thought about Chris, and you, I think mm-hmm. you'll probably agree mm-hmm. after having talked to him a bunch, is that he's kind of a conflict-adverse guy. Mm-hmm. He's not— no. He's not like one of the no, founders. he means well. He, he means, means well. Yeah. And I'm a conflict-adverse person. We had this kind of perfectly conflict-adverse <laughs> relationship until things exploded. Yeah. yeah. So what, what happened there from your perspective? So what happened was, and I'll, I'll talk, I'll talk <laughs> like with you in a little bit greater honesty than I've talked about. I mean, I think that his life was kind of in crisis mm-hmm. when his husband ran for Congress. Right. And there was this front page story about them on the New York Times. Yes, I saw that. And I think it, it was just embarrassing to him. Mm-hmm. And then the New Republic was losing. Uh, we were spending a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Not 
I think, you know, in his fortune, he could easily absorb the right. losses, but nobody likes to absorb mm-hmm. losses, no, even if they're, losses, even yeah. if they've kind of advertised themselves as an, as an idealist. Losses. And right. so he really scrambled to kind of figure, well, and also I think he felt a degree of shame in mm-hmm. that he was always considered to be this guy who had lucked into his fortune. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he's that's kind of yeah. one of the main theses yes. of his new work. He was there. Right. He was there. And right. so he wanted to prove himself. Facebook. This is, Chris got made his money from Facebook. From, he wanted to prove himself on terms that right. that Zuckerberg and mm-hmm. uh, the other early Facebook people would respect. And also he acknowledged that he hated selling ads, which mm-hmm. was the thing that he had shouldered a lot of. Uh, when when he became when he appointed himself publisher mm-hmm. of the magazine, and uh, so he began shopping for a CEO, right. and there were all sorts of different ways that we could go with that. And right. he was. This is one of the things that was surprising to me was that he was so open mm-hmm. with me about the process of selecting a CEO. So mm-hmm. I had always reported to an owner before, and so there was going to be a new layer. Yeah. And so he was very gracious he wanted you to be part of it. And, and, and it so I liked. Most of the people that we had we'd mm-hmm. interviewed, <laughs> and uh, except for the one that he pick. wanted to pick, yeah, and that guy whose actual whose name was Guy, mm-hmm. ironic, um, Mr. Digital, yeah, and he'd come from Yahoo, mm-hmm. oh, and, I know Guy, yeah, and I didn't have anything against his resume or, uh, uh, but it was clear to me from the start what that a he bad was fit. he um, was it was a bad fit, but also that he just didn't want to deal with me. Right. And so in the process where Chris had opened up this interview process, I was having coffee and talking on the phone with all the candidates, and he was the one who was kind of seemed to be avoiding me. Mm-hmm. And so I took that to be a bad sign, and yeah. I let Chris know that he was the one that I didn't like. And, and then, of course, he was the one that he picked. Right. And then it's, it was almost inevitable that things would go bad from there. There was this, my first, it took me two weeks to get a meeting with him. Mm-hmm. And when I did, I went into his office and um, on a whiteboard, he just started to diagram the ways in which he wanted to change the editorial mm-hmm. process of the magazine and and how and and all of these shifts yeah. and it was being imposed. And then we had this editorial meeting where he unveiled himself to the staff, and it was like he'd studied every single cliche of being a tech CEO yes. and wanted to come in and kind of swagger. Yeah, and there was just no. Effort Shareable to, nuggets. Yeah, snackable. Snackable nuggets. Snackable scalable. content. Yes, yeah. Scalable. Well, and also just kind of the, the, the like, it's a magazine that had just celebrated its 100-year mm-hmm. birthday. Yeah, and you guys are the worst ones to pull that stuff on. Like, oh, no. Like, yeah. I have to say, if I had to pick a group of people I wouldn't pull that on, it would be that group. And by the way, you're not easy yourselves. Like, that's the thing. They're yeah. Resistant to change. Totally. Utterly resistant to change. Totally. I talked to a bunch of I was like, come on. Like, some of the stuff you can start doing. Like, Well, I mean— to be fair, mm-hmm. I felt like over time I, I was because I'm a I'm a I'm a grown up. Mm-hmm. I understand that mm-hmm. the world, you know, things yeah. change. Yeah. That you have to swallow things that you don't want to do. Some of it is it is easy, mm-hmm. but there was this way in which. Oh no, he was wrong. No, no, but there was also this way. I mean, to, 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 in their defense, mm-hmm. there is this way in which, kind of subconsciously, you you know, even if you know something is easy and it's helpful. You don't want to do it because it's not what you signed up for. Right, exactly. No, but but I think in a lot of ways it's—when these things, these tech journalist things happen, all that matters is the journalism, for one. That's number one. And number two, you aren't going to make a lot of money here, everybody. Like, that's the other—like, sorry, you're going to make—you can make good money, you'll be famous. Like, I think the way Bezos has done it is perfect. Like, it's not going to make a lot of money, but it's good. He's mm-hmm. helping it. It's yeah. gotten better. Like those are the kind, those are the smaller things, and that's what I hope the rest of these people will realize. But yeah. the journalism matters above all, and that's it. Yeah, like, yeah. Well, I think it's exactly what you're talking about. It's once you come in with a plan to alter the core, mm-hmm. and then you're starting to mess with the mission right. of the organization. You're essentially destroying the underlying value. Yeah. Of the enterprise. Yeah, but there's nothing wrong with asking people to tweet and do things like get in that. And that the I, people are – journalists are still resistant. I'm like, get out of the way if yeah. you don't want to like, – I, I don't disagree it. with that. But there was this way in which uh, – so one of the faults of the New Republic mm-hmm. in its modern incarnation was that it was contrarian to the core. Mm-hmm. And then you were asking us to kind of do the thing that was trending and the thing that everybody else was doing. And that just felt – bad right? because you signed up to be original. Right. And then they were like, well, just take a li- goddamn clip from The Daily Show and write uh, a tested headline for it. Mm-hmm. 
And and that's so easy to do, right? right. We and should, probably the right thing. We probably should have been able to do it. Mm-hmm. But there was this way in which when you ask people to do that, they just resent it so <laughs> much. Such- you're like, you're paying. But you're also, it's like at the New Republic, the, you know. You're paying them enough to. Yeah, it's like if, I, I, you're, you're asking. It, that's work that ends up getting passed down to a kid. Right. And you're like, we're paying you $30,000 a year. Right. Or whatever, $35,000 a year. Yeah. And you came in with this expectation. Of writing the great essay. Yeah. And then you're going to have to, like, just cut and paste yeah. links from yeah. shows all day yeah. long. Now you work for the BuzzFeed yeah. farm. Yeah. Yeah. Like, that kind of thing. Yeah. Kind of. So you, you were there, and then you left. You left quite famously. Right. So it was— um, I resigned. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was also a resignation where I knew I was going to get fired. So. Right. It was very righteous. I liked it. I like, it oh, was over you. the meddling. Yeah. Well, what happened was— I had at a certain point. I was just like, I'm, I'm done. Life's too I short. was actually, I was gonna quit. I was gonna quit, and I was gonna offer them terms of mm-hmm. quitting. Where I was just like, look, I'm not your guy to do this. Mm-hmm. You know, let's just, you know, you Bygones. can, you can, you can just move on with your thing. I'll move on with my thing. Mm-hmm. You know, best of luck to us all. Mm-hmm. And then I saw, I knew that there, I, I, I got. Because I'm a reporter, right. like I heard that uh, there was some other guy who had been an editor at Gawker mm-hmm. who was talking to people about jobs, and mm-hmm. he was saying that he was going to be the next editor of the New Republic. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, at that point, it's almost a cost-free right. resignation. It's yeah. not. It's not. It's, it, <laughs> yeah. it's not as righteous as you want. The, no. the other people who followed me at the door were doing it for righteous reasons, yes. and yes. so a bunch of the staff quit because they did not. It's it just like it, it, in terms of signaling. It was fantastic. It was yeah. such a good like media moment. Well, it was, and it was like an adolescent fantasy uh-huh. where you're like, I yeah, quit, leaving. and then you know a bunch of other people quit too. But yeah. it was, it's also it's a scary thing, right? Mm-hmm. It's like in journalism, we're kind of berated by our owners and and, Not and by for the media. Me. I love quitting. No, but, but the media is constantly telling yeah. you that like there are no journalism jobs, right? That yeah, if I you, love quitting. It's my yeah. favorite thing. It is it's pretty my favorite weapon. It's my. I'm leaving now. <laughs> it's great. It's, it frees you when you don't worry about it. It is true. You know? That is so true. You take back the power. It's really great. You have to be talented. That's the thing. You have to be so you have other options. But it's pretty powerful to start doing that because now it's easier because uh, you can make your own things. If you're entrepreneurial, it's good for you. If you're not, it's bad for you. So you went on to do the Atlantic. So you left there. And then where, who, who, owns the, is this, who owns the New Republic now? A guy from Oregon mm-hmm. um, who uh, called Wynn McCormick, mm-hmm. who I think also owns the Baffler. Okay, so they're more comfortable in that setting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's it's been reinvented. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, for my own psychic piece, I didn't look at it for a long time. But actually, as I was m- on my way up here, there was Ezra Klein's copy was sitting in the mailbox, <laughs> and so I picked it up. I was like, <laughs> I haven't, I haven't seen this thing in so long. Of let me just Ezra gets a copy. Let me let me just take a look at it, and it was actually. Um, I actually liked what I saw. It Good. surprised me. Yeah. I mean, it's a lot further to the left mm-hmm. than we were. It should be back then. Yeah. But I mean, that's where the yeah. that's where the zeitgeist is going. So you moved to the Atlantic and then wrote this book. You've been working, or did you write the book first? I wrote the book first. first. I mean, so what prompted you this experience with Chris? It's actually so. Uh, yes, it did. But yeah, but so really you got I a little was... glimpse into my world. <laughs> Twenty, and he's one of the nicer ones. I'll tell you that. So I, um, I'd actually begun to think about this much before because. I had been radicalized by Amazon's conflict with Hachette mm-hmm. over ebook pricing. Right. And so I I saw this and I was a it's all self-interested, right? I was a writer with I had written a book with Hachette and I just saw what Amazon was doing. And at first I didn't really care that much because you know mm-hmm. it's like a big publishing oligopoly against right. Right. Uh, an, an ebook monopoly and I like, you know, I get a lot of stuff from mm-hmm. Amazon, and I've never been anti—I I wasn't especially anti-Amazon before that. But then I saw the way in which they were abusing their market power, stripping the buy buttons off of Hachette books, redirecting people on searches. Yeah. And so it um, it got me thinking, and it got me active. And right. um, Yeah. So we're going to talk about that and the book itself because I think it was one of the first times – I've been talking about this for about 18 months too, but this issue around these issues, the existential threat of big tech and they're also the lack of responsibility. We're here with Frank Four. He's the author of a book, World Without Mind, The Existential Threat of Big Tech, and it's now out in paper book. But it's a, it's a big issue now and it's sort of come to the fore. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. 
because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. We're here with Frank Four. He wrote a book called World Without Mind. It's about the threat that t- big tech brings to us. And you said you started it because you had had this experience with Chris Hughes. Like, you'd gotten a little taste of the internet people. And then Amazon was attacking Hachette. Right. And um, so I was active. I have got active with the Authors Guild. Mm-hmm. And I went in to right. meet with the FTC and the Justice Department to try to get them to do something. And one of the things is, is that my dad was an anti is uh, an antitrust lawyer mm-hmm. who— it was like oh, his, even better. It's like it's his passion. Yeah. It's his passion. It's like mm-hmm. he was – he – another weird thing. So right now we're in a building on Connecticut Avenue in Washington, D.C. It was a building my grandfather had a jewelry store for a long time. The in the Brooks, No, in the Brooks Brothers okay. space. Right. And okay. so when he was – my dad was trained as an antitrust lawyer. And when my grandfather was passing away, he, he asked my dad to take over the jewelry store. And mm-hmm. so my dad was kind of – waylaid a little bit uh, from his passion for antitrust, mm-hmm. but he was also he, – he testified against Robert Bork as a small businessman, mm-hmm. and um, it was something that he just always remained really passionate mm-hmm. about. And then when the recession of the early 90s kind of wiped out a lot of retail, my dad was kind of stuck trying to figure out what to do, and he's like, you know, screw it. My passion is antitrust. I'm going to start uh, an advocacy group slash think tank. Did, passion was anti. Just once. I, I know. Okay. I know. All right. Whatever. I all know. Right. Everybody has yeah. you know, is moved by their own thing. And <laughs> yes. can you believe it's like antitrust? <laughs> yes, yeah. that will be my interest. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so it was like I grew up yeah. hearing about the the <laughs> perils of monopoly. It was something that I didn't really take to until I could start to see it mm-hmm. um, with the tech companies. And so I was started to think about it almost from an economic framework first and expanded out, just that we, there's this problem of dependence. Mm-hmm. When you become dependent on a platform, right. the platform starts to have all this power over you. And so writers are incredible narcissists. Mm-hmm. We like to think that we're at the center of the narrative. Right. But actually, in a way, we were because Amazon first— Started with big, the world's biggest bookstore. It was a bookstore, right? Mm-hmm. And so, when, and they amassed this incredible monopoly in ebooks, an indisputable monopoly, where mm-hmm. they, you know seventy percent of all ebooks are sold through Kindle. And so, they could set the terms, and they were setting the terms in a really bullying sort of way, with no concern to the underlying health of the industry, mm-hmm. and they were disrupting the industry in order to consolidate even greater power. Right. And so th- they wanted everything published directly through Amazon. Right. Now, that didn't work, which is really interesting, that um, ebook sales have plateaued. Right, and a- Apple came in and Apple others. came in, but also the idea of Kindle singles and, mm-hmm. and that they were starting a publishing house where they would use their Remember? platform to advantage themselves. That didn't work. And I think publishers, book publishers, as opposed to media, have actually made a lot of important decisions that, in retrospect, were virtuous, healthy decisions where they defended the underlying economic value of their product. And they they did take a stand against the platform. They didn't kind of meekly accede to There's still under articles. the sway of Amazon, though. There's still— Oh, of course. Yeah. But, they, but they also protected their, their business. Right. They protected it for now. For now. For today. Because <laughs> Amazon's selling microwaves and furniture now. So yeah. they'll, they'll march into every every sector that they can march into. Of course. But, and, and, but isn't that—what uh, yes. I'm getting at is, is that, that like, what happened with publishers is going to happen to the rest of the economy. It is happening to the rest of the economy. Yes. Where, yes. you know, if you're a peach producer for Whole Foods, like, in, in rural 
rural Pennsylvania, you're going to start getting squeezed by Amazon at a certain point. Right, absolutely. So when you're saying world without mind, so you, you had these two experiences, one with at the, in the New Republic, one uh, with Hachette and Amazon. Why world without mind? So you decide you're going to write a book about this very early on. I mean, I think most people were in the tech is fantastic zone. Yeah. Um, uh, when you were writing this. Yeah, so it definitely felt like a quixotic adventure right. at first. Um, so I was I was thinking about a couple things. One is I also, like, I wasn't as articulate and precise as somebody like Tristan Harris mm-hmm. in terms of talking about, contem- uh, about attention. About the addiction, right. Yeah, attention. The attention. But yeah. I could see that these devices were the enemy of contemplation mm-hmm. and that Obviously, I wasn't the first one to, to make this point. Right. Lots of people were making this point that that the attention that they were constructing an attention economy. Yes, but that to the me slot machine of attention. Is yeah, what I call it. And and that that to me was one crucial piece of it, mm-hmm. which was that they were they were actually preventing us from thinking. Well, they're addictive, and they were underscoring their addiction by creating the way the way they were doing it. But but when your when your thought processes are constantly being manipulated by invisible forces, which is what what happens, where mm-hmm. you know Facebook and Google are constantly organizing things in ways in which mm-hmm. we're not really cognizant, and we're not even taught to be cognizant, and right. most people aren't, and 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 done in a way in which they're leveraging our data. I mean, our data is this cartography of the inside of our psyche. Mm -hmm. And they know our weaknesses and they know the things that give us pleasure and the things that cause us anxiety and anger. And they use that information in order to keep us addicted. Mm -hmm. And so that makes the companies the enemy of independent thought. Right. So you have that, the addiction part. You have the market power over advertising, over all kinds of behavior, over retail, over how people look at things. So when you're saying world without mind is that we don't have a mind anymore. That's essentially it, right? Yeah. I mean, I was getting at a couple things. So one was the the addiction piece of it. One was the ways in which I saw that they were devastating journalism and culture industries, you know, not universally. Music, because entertainment. Right. Yeah, I mean, yeah. obviously we've seen right. in television, uh, you know, something of a renaissance over the course of the last— In part because of these companies. In part because of these companies, no doubt. But you could also see in a lot of the other traditional culture industries that it was uh, that their values were perniciously infiltrating the industry. So in journalism, what we we could see the ways in which, as journalism has grown increasingly dependent on Facebook and Google mm-hmm. uh, for for traffic and therefore for revenue, uh, the ways in which when their algorithms change, when they construct these systems, you have no choice but to adhere to their standards and values as you go about right. constructing things. And right. so that, that's— And they are ill-equipped to do that. Yes. I just was having a discussion about that, you know, in terms of— when someone was asking me about Mark Zuckerberg, and I said, he's ill-equipped to handle these issues. That's, that's the worst problem, is right. not that he has the power and not the ability. Well, it's also when you interviewed him, mm-hmm. and, oh. and he, he sunk himself. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could just see the wheels turning in his head. Slowly. And he just didn't understand the way that— it, it seemed like he didn't even understand the way his own platform worked. I think he's ill-equipped to handle the challenges, which are massive— in front of him, and he has all the power. So this, there's a broader cultural mm-hmm. problem, which is that you have these companies that have been that were started by engineers, and mm-hmm. engineers ascend to the mm-hmm. highest ranks of those companies. That's and right. if you're trained as an engineer, you're trained in a very narrow way of thinking. You're trained right. to make a system work mm-hmm. um, and, and work on its own terms. You're trained not to look at the problems. You're trained to look at only solutions. Yes. Exactly. But you've also, and you're trained to, you know, when you construct the system, you think of human beings as a pile of data. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Not as a human being. You can't think of them in all their full dimensions and— Or you can't reflect on, again, reflect on what happened. Like, it's sort of like there's the Challenger accident and going, you know, we're not going to focus on the O-rings. Let's just build a better rocket. That's how they answer. And you're like, what about the (laughs) O-rings? Like, how did that happen? How did that—like, that's a really interesting problem— and it resulted in tragedy. So, but if you if you don't if you don't diagnose the problem with the O rings, you're you're you're, you're no, skipping something why, fundamental which, in understanding exactly, the way that. Which is why in that interview, when I kept saying, "How do you feel about this?" and he's like, "I'd like to get to the solutions." I'm like, "I'd like to get to the problem. Like, I'd yeah. like to get to how you got to the problem." Yeah. And and I kept saying, "How do you?" F-? That's why I was kept asking four or five times, "How do you feel about your invention being misused this way?" And this is the thing that annoys me mm-hmm. in these conversations because mm-hmm. I've I've tried to engage with the tech companies mm-hmm. at various moments, and they can understand. Okay, we have a fake news problem. Okay, we we need to, uh, b- but they don't the bot uh, problem. But they never talk about manipulation, which mm-hmm. is the core of the problem. That that the problem is that they've created these platforms that 
are based on this idea that they're going to be able to manipulate us to engage us for as long as possible mm-hmm. and that other people are going to come into the outside from the outside right. and take advantage of that right. because that's the system that they created. Well, that's I keep saying that it's exact they didn't hack it was built this way. Exactly. It's acting, you know, remember Jessica Rabbit, I, I you can't blame me. I was I was drawn this way. Yeah. This is the way I was drawn. So w- there's a point you were trying to get through when you were talking about it was this that we are facing a threat from these companies, which was in—you were early. You were—I mean, I've always been banging at them. But in terms of the popular company, why has it taken so long for that to happen? Why did it take so long? And then in our next section, I'd like to talk about where it goes because now everyone's fully aware of these problems. Look, the United States is not—you uh, know, we, we like—when we build a competitive sector, that mm-hmm. becomes a source of national pride. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, when when um, you which have a new is when you country. had you had a new elite emerging, and it's exciting to have a new elite and emerging. They're very wealthy. They're very wealthy. They uh, they defied a lot of our stereotypes about what captains of industry should look like. Yeah, and, and yeah, and the the, the, and the cult of youth is such a powerful American thing. Mm-hmm. So you have you have uh, these people appear on the scene, and we you know, and at first. I mean, I I was – I can't say that I was skeptical of these people right from the start. What Mm -hmm. they did seemed exciting and novel, and it takes a while for us to realize exactly what they've done that's so terrible or what the threats are that's posed by them. And media certainly was complicit in concocting a very, very glossy perception of this cohort. Mm -hmm. And in terms of how exciting they were, how interesting, how quirky, how strange – yeah. Aren't they refreshing? Yes. Th- you, that, not your father's old mobile. That, and also the products that they were creating defied a lot of our templates for, right. uh, you know, thinking about some of these problems. So if you're, you're talking about Monopoly, well, they give away their products for free. And so they defy a lot of the problems that we associate with Monopoly, which mm-hmm. are all about jacking up prices. Mm-hmm. Or media was in no position to decry them because they'd made a devil's bargain with them many years earlier. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting to me about the backlash is how much of it seems based on kind of pent-up emotions, that there's this psychodrama that journalism's had where it's known a lot of what's wrong. I mean, I'm, I'm talking like the New York Times, mm-hmm. where it was like every day the New York Times was hammering these companies. It, it was like it was like this pent-up rage uh-huh. that they were suddenly expressing that they hadn't been allowed to talk about or feel or express right. for many years. And so it came out in this kind of everyday hammering. Yeah. All right, we'll talk about that more when we get back with Frank Four. He's the author of World Without Mind. He's also a writer for The Atlantic. And we'll talk about where it's going. We're here with Frank Four. He's the author of World Without Mind. It's come out in paperback, but you wrote it about a year ago. We were talking yeah. about how it went from that. What tipped it from your perspective? Because it was going along, like, look at these cool uh, covers of Fortune, aren't these interesting, rulers of the world, that kind of stuff. Shifted really quickly. Well, clearly the proximate trigger was the election of Donald Trump. Right. And on the surface, the reasons for the backlash are obvious, the Cambridge Analytica scandal, Mm -hmm. Russian interference more generally. But I think it was also the sense that that's not even expressed that much because it sounds elitist. Mm-hmm. And as you know from my book, I'm not afraid mm-hmm. to sound elitist. No, go right ahead. <laughs> Frank, you're elite. <laughs> I am too. Um, it's, it's that Facebook produced this garbage ecosystem for news and information. Mm-hmm. And if you give citizens garbage information, they're going to make garbage decisions. Mm-hmm. And so it's hard, you know, we don't, we, you, this is the kind of intangible thing that you can, I, I lay blame at Facebook on that I can't prove explicitly, but when so many people are influenced by what they read on Facebook, Mm -hmm. they deserve blame for creating the environment that created Donald Trump because it was not an it's not an environment of reliable information. It was it was it was an environment filled with uh, filter bubbles that made us uh, that kind of weakened our intellectual defenses. It made us really vulnerable to demagoguery. Right. And Twitter and Twitter, same, yeah. Same thing, just sort of the handmaiden to Facebook kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm a little bit less hard on Twitter just because its market share is smaller and— um, oh, its influence is massive. Its influence is clearly massive. Right. Yeah. But, it, I mean, it's kind of—it's 
its influences on elites as much as right as anyone else. But yeah. look, Donald Trump has used the. Oh no, I, it's beautifully. not a it's not a virtuous it's not a virtuous environment. Right, and so when you when you're talking about this, when we don't have these, what are your solutions going for? Because I think the backlash is really continuing; yeah. it hasn't stopped. So, I think that we see two types of solutions coming mm-hmm. down the pike. And actually, can I ask one, yeah. one more thing? It's also not all of tech. Like, can you really blame certain companies for this, others that are not No, necessary? I mean, I, I tried – so I tried to focus mostly on the GAFA companies, mm-hmm. Google, Amazon, Facebook, mm-hmm. and Apple because they have the size. And I think that they're crowding out a lot of innovation and yes, the rest of tech. And so that's – it's a hard position to take where I do have certain Luddite tendencies, mm-hmm. but I, uh, I also think that – Tech is is an incredible thing that, you know, Google is one of the great achievements of human engineering. Mm-hmm. The iPhone is a pretty spectacular yes, uh, incarnation of, of cr- human creativity. creativity. Yeah. So two things that are coming down the pike. One is the possibility of regulation. And so we've seen it already happening. Right. So sex trafficking is the first yes, place. Yes, around and then, Section 230. Yeah. And then we say, okay, you need to take responsibility for foreign um, influence that's uh, a, a, a foreign political influence on your sites. And everybody applauds these things because who could possibly object? And then um, there's pressure for them, uh, a governmental pressure to regulate other speeches, to curb bullying, mm-hmm. to curb bots. And it just doesn't stop, potentially. I think that there's a real danger. And, you know, you look at China, that if we regulate these platforms in the wrong sort of way, I'm sympathetic to their arguments right. that regulation could be a way to for them to squash um, competitors. That mm-hmm. We saw this with AT&T, right, that AT&T cut a deal with the government where they said, all right, what, the function we perform is a utility function. You're going to keep our monopoly and we're going to do whatever the hell you say. And that puts us down the road to China. Right. And so that's why I, you know, I'm not anti-regulation. I think that we need to have some sort of form of data protection. Mm-hmm. And maybe there are other softer steps that we could take that, that so would be important. So think about those. What would those be? So I don't know. Bill of Rights or what? Yeah. So I think that, there, you know, I'm, I'm interested in some of the fiduciary models that are being kicked around. I'm so Explain I, that for people. So when you're dealing with – when you're trafficking in data, when you're trafficking in news and information, all these public goods, Mm -hmm. historically, the government says, okay, you can traffic in those public goods, but it also comes with responsibilities. And so – with the environment, um, you know, there are clear rules that we put yeah. on that say you can't degrade this public thing in certain ways. If you're a cigarette manufacturer or a chemical manufacturer. Yeah, if you're a factory, if you're— Right. right? And we did the same thing with, uh, with the telecom companies as well, with uh, telecom companies with the n- news networks mm-hmm. where they yeah. had fairness doctrines. Fairness and doctrines. we yeah. also limited the ability to, to own, to, to to own, own too, too much. Yeah. Right. So I think that there are important analogs that we could consider there. That we consider, do you think that's going to happen? I do. I think that there are changes within the Democratic Party right now that make yes. that much oh, more yeah. likely to happen. I just did an interview with Mark Warner that hasn't been published yeah. yet. Because we did he have pub- him at Code this year. He, he published this white paper yep. that I think is really— sweeping in its criticisms of big oh, tech. Yeah. It doesn't yeah. have the silver bullet solution. It's kind no, of he's quite all into, of the, I think he's focused a lot on cybersecurity and things like that, but yes, 100%. But he's now talking about privacy, yes, and he he's talking a lot about uh, news. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because, I mean, what's really interesting, I mean, is cause someone from Facebook the other day was saying, well, you know, they're only mad at us because we stopped um, pushing politicians in the press on Facebook and their focus on, like, family and community and stuff like that, I go, oh, I don't think that's – I think that's yeah. – yeah, they're real mad about that. Like, I don't think that's what they're real mad about. I think they're mad about a range of other things. Right. And you're right. The Democratic Party, which was the well, friend was, to tech, is now going to turn on it. It was – you interviewed Cory Booker, right? That yes, was the famous did. interview and where, where he – and, and so when, when Booker uh, talked about regulation in your interview mm-hmm. – I think I, I was I had lunch with somebody from Google mm-hmm. soon after, and they said, "Well, that's the marker that's been laid down that he is he's kind of the most centrist politician uh, yep. that he's somebody who we thought was an ally, 
And he's somebody who is now saying that he's considering taking pretty radical action Mm -hmm. against us. Well, then everybody else in the Democratic Party is going to be further to the left than him. Yeah, absolutely. So what solutions, when you think about their influence now, I I mean, obviously everyone can be stopped on some level. Every big company has been brought down ultimately over time, whether it's U.S. Steel or whatever. These things have these things, but they do incredible damage along the way. Do you consider tech damaging now? Yeah, I do. I do. I mean, I think that the last election is probably as mm-hmm. as good evidence as we could look at it, the ways in which it's been it, – it's, it's damaging. And I think that the questions are so, – because tech is everything, mm-hmm. right? It's almost silly at a certain level to talk about tech anymore because tech is everything. It's the oxygen. Yeah, it is the oxygen. And so when we talk about Amazon, we're talking about the future of the economy. We're talking about the future of jobs. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we talk about Facebook and Google, we're talking about companies that have just – that are so much more than the front-facing obvious part of their platforms. And mm-hmm. with Alexa they're in, in, in Google Home, they're implanting themselves ever deeper into – our lives. And I think anybody who has, you know, who people always ask, can you imagine life without Google? And I'm 44 years old. And I, you know, so of course I can Mm -hmm. imagine life without Google. And you can see the ways in which um, the the rise of tech has transformed us as individuals. I found my maps the other day. I threw them out. (laughs) I was like, oh, look, I used to use these. Yeah. And you know, they're well worn. But good riddance to your maps, right? Like I'm totally happy to be done with with maps. But I'm, I'm pissed. And and like I'm unhappy with myself and with the platforms uh, that it makes it harder and harder for me to have a conversation with people I love where mm-hmm. I'm fully Engaged. present. Right, right, right. Absolutely. And one of the things that's interesting is if you think about a lot, like it, it ranges from everything, shopping, mapping, every, everything you do. And so so where do you imagine it's going now? You you wrote about this first more than a year ago and then the paperbacks. Where do you imagine what do you imagine happening next? So you you have these debates happening within the Democratic Party that mm-hmm. seem kind of esoteric. Like, what's the difference between a socialist and a liberal mm-hmm. now? And they're kind of – it's pretty vacuous. Like, I think socialism just means excitement for new ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think it necessarily means nationalizing. But I do think that there are these – so I'm saying there's these two two different approaches. One is that takes us kind of away from capitalism mm-hmm. that maybe treats these companies more and more like utilities and that there's even some I – I can imagine us even contemplating nationalizing Google, mm-hmm. which I don't think would be a good idea. Yeah. But then there's this other tradition, which is the anti-monopoly tradition, which – at her dinner party, we talked about Elizabeth Warren, and mm-hmm. I said I liked Elizabeth Warren, and I think I got death yeah. stares from all of the establishment figures yeah, at the like party. It. They didn't like it. I but, can tell you tech doesn't like her either. But, but. but she is thinking about the future of capitalism in a way that I think mm-hmm. tech should like because – Follow, you're, okay, you're, I'm going to follow you because she literally was the most hated speaker we ever well, had of, at of our course, conference. And I, I thought it was ridiculous that she was incredibly articulate and intelligent about these issues. Because what she's talking about is recreating a competitive economy mm-hmm. where, uh, you know, if you define concentration as the biggest problem, that what what's, what's so bad about Facebook? Well, Facebook wouldn't be bad if it wasn't so dominant. Mm-hmm. And so if you had, if you had a smaller Facebook – well, that that's something I think we could all well. I think live they, with they if, think of themselves as smaller. You know that these people, these the Googles, they think of themselves as like scrappy. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm like you got just got in a private plane and flew to like yeah. to Kilimanjaro to hike. Like you're right. not scrappy. When you have right, you have two billion global users. Nice chef. Yeah. Like you know what I mean. But it's astonishing when you talk to them. They they feel like I'm just a regular person. I'm like, no, you're not. What are you talking about? Like, yeah. Yeah. Well, this is also part of the problem, which is that this is separate from the solutions. But when you accumulate great power, Mm -hmm. you also accumulate great responsibilities. Right. I say that all the time. When I was listening to Zuckerberg, when I listened to him, when I listened on your podcast, it seemed like he was so uncomfortable with his— He wants to push it away. —with the the idea that he would have any sort of responsibility. Well, he's also uncomfortable with— the power, but he's not giving it up. Like, it's really fascinating. Like, he's uncomfortable. He wants to push away the power. Oh, it's the community. I'm like, but you control it. And, right. But it's the community. I'm like, well, why do you have all the stock that controls the entire board? Right. Every decision is yours. So, so this is, is where, where we're headed is we're going to have a conversation about power. Right. This is the conversation we should be having, that mm-hmm. they have too much power. Our politics and our policy 
should be shaped around But curbing. do we have the right policy in place? Because we're thinking no. we're living in an AT&T Microsoft world like that. We can grab them for a monopoly. But I think, but I not, think they're not clearly – like going back to your dad, the whole concept – and this has been written about quite a lot recently. The whole concept of what antitrust is has to change drastically. Yeah. Well, or it has to just revert back to what it was before the 1960s when Robert Bork bastardized mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Um, that – Instead of just focusing, you know, the standard right now is consumer welfare, mm-hmm. which means that if they don't jack up prices, if they don't do anything, and they to deliver actually, beautifully, per, yeah, then there's nothing we can do about mm-hmm. these companies. And that was my frustration when I went and talked to the uh, the Justice Department about Amazon. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, they're actually hurting they're hurting consumers over the long run by hurting producers, mm-hmm. and they're behaving in a bullying sort of way. Maybe not to consumers, but to Producers, like, why in God's name can't you see the harm? Mm -hmm. And they just couldn't see it because it was so uh, it was so outside of the current paradigm under which they're operating. I don't think it's that hard to change the paradigm here. It just takes it takes some leadership. Do you think that's going to happen? I do. I think that we're we're moving in that direction. I think it's interesting when you look at what the Europeans have done. Yes. So let's set aside the— the Marguerite Vestiger's in town. Yeah. Yeah. So you set aside the GDPR, and Mm -hmm. you look at what she's done— The Amazon just recently. Yeah, and and with Google. And Facebook, all of them. Right. You stare at it really hard. Mm -hmm. You can start to see the ways in which— This is the EU commissioner, just for people who don't know. Start to see the ways in which she's thinking about how do I— how do I lessen their power? How do I take their advertising business and open it up to third parties? Mm -hmm. Which— is in a way a form of breaking up the company. It's mm-hmm. not smashing it into a million bits and pieces, but it's taking critical parts of the company and finding ways to make it uh, more competitive, more welcoming to an ecosystem that supports uh, startups, and, startups and it's not just dominated by the mm-hmm. platform itself. Mm-hmm. And so you, you look at Amazon, I think there's this interesting principle that Amazon – operates like this bazaar. It's this it's this marketplace, yet it's also a competitor in the marketplace. And I think we need to find ways to separate those two functions. To say right. if you're gonna own the bazaar, you can't also actively participate in it. Mm-hmm. This is it's a Google Yelp case. Right, right, exactly, which has gone on and on and on. And what's interesting is the Republicans are attacking tech on all the wrong reasons than they used to like Biased. It's just not. That's not. I'm always like, no, over here. Yeah, <laughs> but there, the crime there, is over here. But there, it's like there. There is this core nugget of insight. You know, that it's something's like, wrong. That something's wrong. That these algorithms are black box, and right. so you know that if you're going to say that you're not biased. Why should I believe you? Yes, and you're, that is you're, true. you're manipulating things in all sorts of invisible sorts of ways. Right. So how do I know you're not manipulating them against me? And so they're just superimposing. Um, I get that. Yeah. I just am sitting there like, no, no, no. That's not what they're doing. They're over here doing yeah, really yeah, bad things to yeah. you that you don't even see. But I think it's it's the obsession with that with Trump on bias and things like that. Well, that's just when like he's the their best friend. I'm like this. Yeah. These hey, you know, attack them all you want, but give some of them a giant you know embossed thank you note for what they did for you, yeah. which is really interesting yeah. on so many levels. Well, right. he changed tax policy. And yes, to, well, they like that. that. They that like that the repatriated yeah. money and everything Those else. Are the bouquet of flowers. Um, so if Democrats get in the House, you think this is. This isn't going to happen quickly. Mm-hmm. I think it, I think it's going to happen, but it's not going to happen quickly. And so with the Zuckerberg hearings, mm-hmm. everybody walked away with this great sense of disappointment. Like, why didn't the world change the next way? Right, day. Next day, because that's just not what happens right. in our political system. Right. Especially when it's dysfunctional and broken. Mm-hmm. And it takes, it takes time for things to turn and to change. And the backlash against these companies has come really quickly. I think mm-hmm. much more quickly than I had expected it would. And so, you know, that needs to simmer for a little bit. And you need political leaders to emerge to kind of take those sentiments and to corral them towards policy ends that actually might do something. And so what do you imagine it be, that being? So I don't think that this is going to be – I don't think tech is going to be a big campaign issue in mm-hmm. 2020. Mm-hmm. I think monopoly is going to become a big uh, issue in 2020 because we have – concentration in all these industries and it's having an effect on the labor market. It has an effect on healthcare. It's kind of crazy uh, if you if you have a kid who has a nut allergy that there's only one maker. You know, there's been EpiPen's had this unchallenged right. monopoly and we've just fallen asleep. And so 
that All becomes over the place. Yeah. yeah, that just becomes an issue. It becomes a new framework. But I think that democratic elites are starting to kind of universally almost think about the perils of big tech. And so once they come into power on this issue of monopoly, they then redirect it towards these companies. And you look at the people who would populate the FTC or mm-hmm. the, the other regulatory agencies that would deal with big tech, they're thinking about this stuff yeah, now. Yeah, finally. And it's before, even even the most conventional center-left, neoliberal, whatever you want to call them, mm-hmm. democratic policy wonks, I think, have arrived at the place where they can see that something big needs to be done against these companies. You think Trump will move against them in any way, besides his crazy tweets? I wouldn't be—so I I got invited to speak at the Justice Department mm-hmm. uh, by Macon Del Rahim. Yeah, um, and I just had him on the podcast. Yeah. He's hugely intelligent. He's a fascinating, fascinating guy. And um, he endorsed my book to his division. And it's a, this strange thing. Like, you're walking into the session, Jeff Sessions— Justice Department, and mm-hmm. I'm kind of delivering my, whatever, my populist indictment mm-hmm. of these companies, and they're nodding their their heads, and you think, well, this could go really badly in dangerous directions, mm-hmm. but so much of our world is about pressure. Mm-hmm. It's about, so what was with Microsoft, Microsoft wasn't broken into a million pieces, mm-hmm. but it felt pressure, and that pressure constrained them. And so when it came to using their power in a bullying sort of way, they thought two and three times about it and to the detriment of the company, but also to the good of the Internet. Yeah. I, mean, I think Google would have been strangled by Microsoft. Uh, I don't know if you agree yes. with that. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I, Well, maybe not. I don't, you know, there's, time comes for people, but in this case, they do have these advantages that they don't even realize they have. You know, they, they do realize they have them. I don't know. I, I, everyone says they're more reflective – I think I know it sounds crazy, but what just happened at, with Instagram and Facebook tells me no. That yeah, they have learned they to have that happen there. It's a big sign that that, that they're becoming um, more inflexible. Well, that's actually part of the problem, which is that in the end, you can apply pressure on them, but you can't count on them to regulate themselves. No, and I, you know, there was a moment. I, it took me so long to quit Facebook. Mm-hmm. And it's not even that I liked using it that much, but I, I wrote a book. Mm-hmm. I knew everything that was wrong with Facebook, but I just kept it. And then there was that – there was kind of this spurt of things that Zuckerberg did around the hearings. And just like <laughs> listening to him talk after everything, I thought you're still being so evasive. Mm-hmm. You're still dissembling about the core things that your business does. Everything I think that you're doing wrong, you're probably doing 100 times worse than I know. And I'm just done with you. And mm-hmm. I and I and, I, and, and broke up. And I broke up with him. Yeah. You still on Twitter? Yeah. Yeah. Why? I like Twitter. Because it's I mean, it's, it's just a mess. Yeah, it's fun. I don't. I I can't actually. You know, I think that they're bad. Obviously, bad things that come of Twitter. But there's also a lot of good that yeah, comes of funny Twitter. Memes and stuff like that. But it's also as a person who was trying to. You know, I I you made fun of me for coming in with my paper edition <laughs> mm-hmm. of the New York Times. Yes, I did. But I also like Twitter, and I think that they're both pretty good technologies for delivering information. I agree. I just haven't picked up a paper newspaper in 100 years. And in my life, I kind of need them to complement one another because I get lost on Twitter all the time. So finishing up, what's your next book then? What are you going to focus on? I'm focusing on work. Future of work. You know, that's my big thing. I talk about that a lot. Especially I'm focusing on the tech company's responsibility in it, but it's, it's a critical how we're going to work. It's all affected by tech, AI, automation, robotics. Totally. So yeah. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not doing this about tech per right. se. I mean, I, I it's kind it's of, about tech. I know it is about tech, right. but tech is everything. Right. Um, <laughs> no, I, I'm, I'm trying to do it about asking the question, why is it that we work? Yes. And work as a source of meaning is something that's— Dignity. Um, but we work all the time, and yet we're very— unreflective about why we do it. And so as a consequence, both as individuals and collectively, we degrade the possibility of of gaining meaning from work. Mm -hmm. And if we focused on that, I think that we could make work a lot better for us as both the choices that we make individually, 
but also— That's a great topic. By the way, you're only going to work three days a week going forward, so you know. <laughs> your kids are definitely not working more than three. I'm kind of psyched about that. Really? You'll be dead by that time. Yeah. So you're going to work five, seven, but I, <laughs> I thought I thought, I thought tech was going to deliver me immortality. No, it's not going to do that for you. Maybe your kids, but not you. Never for you. I thought the singularity was happening No, it's in not. My Let's not even get into that. <laughs> Frank, it was great talking to you. Thanks for coming on the show. If you enjoyed the interview as much as I did, be sure to subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can find more episodes of Recode Decode on Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to say hi, tweet at me. I'm at Kara Swisher on Twitter. Frank, where can we follow you online? Besides the Atlantic. O Twitter. At Franklin4. At Franklin4. And spell it for them. It's F-O-E-R. Yes. All right. Uh, Now that you're done with this, go check out the latest episode of Recode Media and check out Frank's book, World Without Mind. You can find that book on Amazon or wherever you want to buy it. Um, And you can find... No judgment. No judgment. Uh, Buy it wherever you want. And you can find Recode Media wherever you found this one. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. And thanks to our editor, Joel Robbie, and our producer, Eric Johnson. I'll be back here on Monday. Tune in then.